Welcome to this topical life. Real conversation, real exploration, real life stories. A discussion about life, cause life ain't a vacation. And now, here's your host, Tiffany Murphy. Hello and welcome to This Topical Life. Today we have Eric Kilgore, a special guest because you know all my guests are special. But um, Eric and I were actually, we were going to record this past Saturday, but today's the day, you guys, because um, since I passed that kidney stone, um, I'm alive and Eric's here to, to, to be with me. Um, I had to cancel for the first time ever. So I'm so glad you could be here, Eric, to yeah, thank you. Um, unfold your story. <laughs> yeah, seriously, right? Um, a terrible thing. Yeah, I was like, I don't feel so good, you know? Yeah. And I'm usually like not a canceler. So yep. yeah, and you were so understanding. So here we That's are um, the next week. And um, we have a heavy story here for you guys. Um, so get comfortable, take a seat, take in what you're going to hear. But um, I think during this time of COVID too, it brings some light to some di different subjects that we all might be dealing with or facing or just heaviness in general. Um, before we get into that, Eric, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, yeah. 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 My name's uh, Eric Kilgore. Uh, thank you for having me on, Tiffany. Um, uh, I was uh, born and raised here in uh, Portland, Oregon my whole life, uh, native Portlander, which is uh, seemingly hard to find these days. Um, and for the last, oh, last, uh, nine years, um, we had a, a small family business. My father, brother, and I, uh, my brother is, or was, uh, almost three years older than me. Um, and he tragically passed away December 9th, 2018 of a accidental, uh, fentanyl overdose. Um, yeah, so that's where we're going to start <laughs> yeah. um, since then. And you are married and you have a two-year-old and his name is yes. Henry. And yes, you have yeah. a podcast and a nonprofit organization that we're going to talk about that is mm -hmm. actually named after Henry or right. that has to do with your brother. But um, we'll get into that later. But we are going to unfold his story. And, sure. you know, um, one thing that you brought up before we got started recording is just that you – you know, your brother passed away not even 17 months ago. Is that mm -hmm. right? And, um, and now during the light of COVID-19, just things are getting heavy, you know, things they get are. brought up and, you know, you started something really heavy and, and your world's been opening up and what, what inspired to do what you're doing now? Like, let's start from the very beginning. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. We can go back. Um, what's your story, dude? What's your yeah. story? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, growing up, um, you know, my, uh, you know, my, my mom comes from an uh, English family. Um, her mom is actually uh, came over from London. And oh, wow. uh, so she was very um, heavily in influenced, uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, Catholicism. So we went to Catholic school our whole life. Um, we went to Jesuit high school. Uh, you know, and my brother was one of those ones, you know, he had perfect attendance all the way from kindergarten through high school never got in trouble, you know, never, um, you know, what they call a Jesuit, a jug, uh, a justice under God, where you have to, you know, clean, if you get in trouble or tardy for whatever reason, you have to uh, clean tables during lunch or come Saturday and do yard work, whatever it may be. Um, you know, never got one of those, which is, you know, again, very rare. Um, you know, very good students. 
you know, uh, uh, helped my father out in a previous business. Um, you know, he graduated uh, um, uh, cum laude from PSU and in, in operations and logistics. Uh, all that, you know, all that stuff, you know, pretty typical uh, childhood, uh, you know, growing up, you know, parents married. Uh, I think, oh gosh, going on, probably, uh, let's see, 50, no, it can't be 50 years. Uh, yeah, 40 years, be. I think. Yeah, 40 years going on. Wow, 40 that's years. still. Yeah, I think July. So okay, I think it was yeah. 1980. Um, I should know that date, but uh, so yeah, 40 years, you know. Um, you know, wonderful parents, doting parents, um, all that stuff. So, you know, we had the, the, the typical, or I guess, you know, what people think is the, the typical childhood. Um, you know, we were never, you know, did drugs or, you know, we drank a little bit in high school, things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, my, my, my brother, from what I've been told, my brother, um, when he was 17 or 18 is when he went to uh, the, the dentist to get his wisdom teeth pulled. And that was his first experience with um, uh, opiates, um, you know, prescribing them, especially dentists. Um, you know, they prescribed uh, opiates for wisdom teeth that, you know, you could really um, just take ibuprofen for, um, for your pain. But uh, yeah. my, my mom told me um, after his death that she vividly remembers him saying, Oh, I like the feeling of what that medication does. And, you know, to any parent or anybody at that time, and, you know, if we go back, this is uh, almost 20 years ago, um, you know, no one really knew anything about opiates at the time. Um, that's when, you know, Purdue Pharma, um, you know, the makers of Oxycontin, they were, you know, just starting to flood the market with, uh, with Oxycontin, you know, in 96, 97. So um, no one really knew. She never didn't really think anything of it, but, uh, it wasn't an after it wasn't until after college um, one of his, one of his good friends uh, started introducing him to oxycotton um, and you know James, you know James had no idea what it was how addictive it was things like that and uh, I think from what I understood was he was on on it for about three to four months until he knew that he was addicted um, oh. and he had you know no clue whatsoever and um, you know, he started, he tried to, you know, just quit, uh, started going through, through withdrawals, started researching withdrawals because how, you know, awful they are. Um, people say, you know, opiate withdrawals are like the flu times 10. Um, so he went to my parents. Um, this is, uh, this probably, let's see, uh, just turned, he just turned 36. So about 14 years ago, um, I think it was 13, 14 years ago. Um, and you know told him and my mom um you know she's you know doesn't doesn't judge anyone um uh, anything like that she immediately hopped into action and started taking him down to um the methadone clinic to get his daily um uh, dispense uh, of methadone um to taper him off uh, to help with the withdrawals i think over 90 days is what from my understand um and this is, you know, as we're, you know, a little less than three years apart, I had no idea um, that he had any sort of, um, you know, opiate uh, disorder for, gosh, I don't know, for uh, up until maybe the last year before he died, year and a half before he died, I was told about it. Um, so, you know, during that time, you know, again, everything was kept hush hush under the radar, um, didn't tell anybody my, my my brother told, uh, you know, made my, um, 
parents, you know, swear that they wouldn't tell anybody, um, you know, just like, you know, with addiction, there comes that stigma and shame around it. Um, you know, that it's a moral failure. It's, um, you know, it's the person's fault, you know, everything that comes with addiction, whether it's opiates or alcohol, whatever it may be, um, you know, you're just, you're looked down upon. And that is, that has one part of what has created this epidemic is the stigma and shame don't, uh, you know, allow people to, um, uh, seek treatment. It's one, it's very far, it's, it's hard to find treatment, but also, you know, um, you know, analogy that people that tend to say is, you know, imagine someone, uh, you know, having cancer, um, you know, the neighborhood rallies around them, right. They, they help out with the parents, they bring over, um, dinner or lunch or whatever it may be. And someone with addiction, same way, uh, going through that disease, you know, they're isolated basically there's you know no one no one cares no one wants to help out so um so yeah so he you know after that um you know the the going through the methadone uh program my parents thought you know just okay you're clean you're good to go right so and that's what you know many many people think is once you're clean it's it's over but in reality um you know uh addiction is a lifelong disease that needs managing just like any other disease. Um, and so looking back now, um, you know, and, and hearing different things after his passing and whatnot, you know, I personally believe he, he, he struggled on and off for, for 12, you know, 13 years with opiate, uh, addiction. Um, and again, you know, into, to put things in perspective of how, you know, we have this image of a, a person in addiction. And the, if you ask anybody, they'll probably say, oh, it's the person on the street, you know, homeless, um, you know, shooting up heroin um, or meth or whatever it may be. Uh, that's not the case. Um, my brother, you know, he, again, like I said, we shared a, we shared a room up until I was uh, 18. Um, I was, uh, we shared an office for, for nine years, same office. Um, never would have guessed in my entire life he had any sort of uh addiction issue you know again especially with opiates because opiates are odorless um you know you you have that stigma of what you think someone with addiction looks like and it's just not true and it it leads you know to people not to uh you know it's just it leads to so many different things you know it's um you know you don't want to I'm just trying to find the words here. Um, you know, really what it comes down to is just, you, again, you just, you have that, um, uh, what you think people look like with addiction and, and it's just, again, it's not true. And, um, well, and, and what too, is that with parents, I think a lot of times too, like when suicide happens or mm-hmm. that kind of thing happens, it's like, well, there's gotta be something wrong with the family. You know, mm-hmm. what's wrong with the family? What's, yep. you know, because everyone wants to look at that situation and think, well, I'm not going to be that person. Yeah. Right. So, and the truth is, is that that's not always the case, you know, nope. and that's what's so hard about it is that there really is no finger to point when we want mm-hmm. to at all the time, you know? So. Oh, it's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone wants to finger to point and, and, you know, like, uh, I know addiction runs on my father's side. Um, and, you know, his, his father was an alcoholic. Um, he didn't die from it. He, he tragically died in a, in a uh, flooding accident. Um, but, you know, it, it runs in that side of the family. And, um, you know, from what we're you know, now understanding. Genetic. You know, genetic, yeah. So, 
um, that's something to look out on. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, I know when my, my son was born, they had a questionnaire of like, you know, does, you know, um, addiction run on any side of the family and you put yes. Um, you know, I believe it was you know, father's side. So that's from what I know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, and I, and I'll never forget this after my brother died. Um, cause I started thinking back, you know, trying to go back to the year of, you know, 2000, 2001, um, you know, it's so long ago and trying to understand what the culture was like. And, and it was probably about a month or two after his passing and varsity blues came on the movie varsity blues, you know, the high school, uh, Texas football players, you know, how big football is in Texas and stuff. Yeah. And, um, I can't remember the character's name. Um, oh, uh, the wild I, the one. Cute one. <laughs> yeah. It's not, I want to say the one Peter, that was always like that. a train wreck. Yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and he, Riggins, it, Tim Riggins. No. no. Um, oh, the one who had the, the one that was the main football player guy. Who no, had, he was like a, a receiver. He was a, the party guy. Uh, and he, he, um, and oh, I'm thinking of Friday night lights. Sorry. Never yeah. Mind. Yeah. 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 Varsity blues. Never this mind. is James Vanderbeek <laughs> going way back. Um, and, I like and the cute one. <laughs> and he was, uh, during the skit, he just goes, um, you know, talking about a, he's talking about a penny drop or a drink. And he's like, it's, you know, it's a, it's a cocktail of, of some sort of alcohol or liquor and, and a couple of Vicodin mixed in. And again, I was like, you know, I, I love that movie growing up. Um, you know, I know a lot of kids did and I go, my God, you know, you just, you think back about that and just how prevalent, um, I remember hearing about Vicodin when I was a freshman, sophomore in high school and stuff. Um, and I think about that. I'm like, wow, this wasn't a major movie. Just, you know, Hey, mix alcohol and a couple of Vicodin and you're good to go. Right. Yeah. So again, it was very prevalent, you know, and, and, you know, those subtle little hints like, oh, it's no big deal. You can just, you know, do that. You know, first of all, never, ever do that. That's just an awful combination of, of medication, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, two depressants. But um, yeah, it just, uh, you know, we, we, you know, we keep going back to this thing of, of, you know, trying to have an image of what people look like, what a person who has depression looks like, what a person who has a mental health disorder looks like, addiction issue looks like. We, we, we think we have these preconceived notions that the media has told us over countless years of what someone should look like, but it's, it just, it's not true. Um, uh, it's not true at all. And, and I, you know, I can just speak to one person, my brother, where, like I said before, um, sharing an office with him for, for nine years, never in my wildest dreams would I have ever thought he would have an addiction issue. Never in my life. Um, came to work, hard worker, um, you know, he's high functioning, um, all that stuff. So, so yeah, so, um, you know, but that doesn't go to, um, you know, say there was issues along the way for sure. Um, you know, what I can say is looking back at those nine years, you know, there were the things of, um, and I'll talk about this is, you know, for me, I started experiencing pretty severe anxiety when I was about 25, um, out of the blue never really had anxiety in my life. Um, just one day it came on and didn't know what it was. Um, so personally for me, I, I have, um, uh, Xanax, um, you know, a small dose to help if I have a, a panic attack, whenever it may be. Um, and for me, when I take Xanax, um, it calms me down. And what I did not understand until, you know, just the last couple of years is how highly addictive Xanax is. Um, did not know that because for me, it works like it should. Um, and many people, you know, 
they find Xanax or Oxycontin, whatever it may be, um, to help cope with their addiction. And, and, um, you know, going through that, I, I look back now and there's, you know, there was a moment, uh, probably three years ago, you know, it's about three years ago where, where I would have my, uh, I had my Xanax bottle and I, I not a fan of flying. And so I was going to New York for my 30th birthday the next day. And my parents were over at our house and my brother was too. And the first thing he did is, you know, I'll have to go upstairs to go to the bathroom. And, you know, before that happened, I counted out my Xanax to make sure I had enough for the trip. Like I always do. And, uh, I go upstairs after they all leave and there was, you know, six missing. Um, and again, you know, I, you don't want to confront any family member about this kind of issue. It's just, you know, first of all, it's just awkward, but, um, so let me, let me say this right here. So at this point in a timeline wise, Mm -hmm. so you are 25 past 25 and he is 28. So, Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, I started experiencing anxiety when I was 25. So this was, uh, five years later. This is when I'm 30, about three years ago. Okay. So Uh, three three years ago. And then, but at this point, like, so when you went to go check, has Mm -hmm. there's always, since the moment that you found out that he had addiction problems, is that always Mm -hmm. something that you think about in your head? Oh yeah. hundred percent. So like everybody's kind of on alert for your brother Mm -hmm. with drugs, you know, but not me, (laughs) but not you, but what made you go upstairs and count the Xanax? Um, you know, I, I can't recall. Um, okay. So you had not that point, you just randomly happened to yeah, I, th- I honestly think it was just uh, everyone left and I, I walked upstairs. Actually, no, no one. No, they didn't leave yet. So I must have had some sort of inkling. I, I can't recall um, okay. that something was going on. And, and uh, you know, it could have been as, as much as I, I heard a you know, pill bottle shaking. Um, and so, you know, I, I did count. And, I mean, it's not like just one or two are missing when you start going, oh, geez, you know. That's the other thing, too, is you start seeing one or two missing. And you're like, oh, maybe I just kind of wrong. You know, start gets in your mind. But you know, people do experience that, you know, keep a mental check on that. Um, you know, this time it was six and that's a, that's a large amount when you have 15, you go, you know, from 16 to nine or 15 to nine, that's a, that's a, you know, big piece of (laughs) your medication missing. Um, so I, I did confront him in the driveway. Um, you know, walked up to him and just said, you know, Hey James, I'm, I'm missing, you know, six of my, um, prescription pills. You know, did you take them? Um, you know, I counted them out just a few hours ago and he said, no. Um, and one one thing that I always I always remember um, about him anything with with addiction was when he was lying he would always look away it was never direct eye contact mm-hmm. um, and I, I vividly remember when he said no you know he looked to the his eyes were just shifted to the right um, never eye to eye and so I I just had something you know in my mind just it just didn't feel right and so my my parents actually were driving him this was when we were living out in Central Oregon and my parents were driving him home. Um, and, uh, uh, during that 15 minute trip, he, he broke down and said, you know, I, I did take him. Um, you know, I'm very sorry about that. And he goes, I just want to feel normal. They make me just feel normal. And to a parent, that's just, you know, that's just awful. You know, here you are, this, this jubilant guy, you know, you know, many friends, all that stuff, you know, why, what do you mean you don't feel normal? And so, when you, when you start talking to people, um, that, that have, who are going through addiction or, or who are in recovery, you know, they, they take, um, a substance to what, you know, like they say, it's to make them feel normal. And that's something I never understood. I mean, I, and I'm just learning that out the last year, um, whether they're trying to, you know, suppress pain or whatever it may be, or they have some sort of mental, um, conditions such as bipolar to help, um, 
you know, numb that pain or, or make them just feel like a normal person in society. Um, well, let me stop you right there because mm-hmm. I had somebody say the other day, um, there's this person who was upset with me and the person said, you don't know what it's like. You take medication. So you just numb out your feelings. And I was like, no, mm-hmm. that's not exactly. It makes me feel like who I am, but mm-hmm. it's not an addiction. You know, sure. so like I take Wellbutrin and Prozac. Mm-hmm. Um, same boat. So someone that's listening might be like, well, I feel normal now that I'm on these kind of meds. What's, di- what's the different normal for an sure. addict than it is someone who's just on antidepressants? Like, what do you sure, think about sure. that? Sure, Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, it's like, uh, um, you know, I have a chemical imbalance in my, in my brain mm-hmm. that puts me on very high edge to the point where I'm having, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, panic attacks. That's not normal. That's not normal behavior. Um, my brother didn't experience that for him. It was the constant. Um, and he talked about this for, for a long time and did see therapists about it is he had the constant flood of thoughts in his mind mm-hmm. that he could just not, they would never leave. It was just nonstop, you know, thoughts, just racing thoughts. And he just, you know, constantly told my parents that it was just exhausting to deal with, you know, just, in, you know, um, uh, exercising did help. They did help uh, release those endorphins and help calm those thoughts down and stuff. And I'll touch on a, a story later on, but um, for him, you know, like a, like a depressant like Xanax um, or, or say such as Oxycontin, it does help ease that pain. It, you know, helps them with that, with that mind. And, um, you know, for, after talking to a couple, you know, a therapist afterwards who has dealt with addiction, um, for 15, 20 years, you know, she, she did, you know, she can't formally diagnose my brother, but did say that she believes he had some sort of, um, on a spectrum of one to 10 on bipolar. She doesn't know, but uh, some sort of low level bipolar where, you know, and, and he talked about that for so long and each therapist never even brought up bipolar. Um, but just the constant racing thoughts, um, all that stuff. So, he would take that and, and it's very common, you, you know, you, you talk to people in recovery and it's very common for them to, to say that, you know, it's, they, they took those thoughts to either suppress some sort of trauma, um, pain they've, they've dealt with and, or, or some sort of mental condition. You know, there's, there's, there are, you know, is research that people with an addiction have a, a, um, high rate of, uh, um, co-occurring mental disorders, whether it's, you know, bipolar or schizophrenia, whatever it may be. So, um, so there is something to that. And, and so for him, it wasn't, you know, for us, we get, you know, it's prescription, you know, when we get our, our antidepressants that, that becomes a prescription, we're not abusing them. For me personally, it helps me not have a panic attack every single day. You know, I, I can live my normal life. Um, for my brother, he would just, you know, he would go up and take Xanax because, um, it made, it made him feel better. That's not, like I understand your question, but you're 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 abusing you're abusing drugs and you're trying to find your own mixture of cocktail to well to in a sense he mind. probably felt a little high. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like well, we and, don't I don't feel high. Yeah, because you have to remember too, people who who have an addiction issue, it's not just take you're just taking one. You know, you're not taking just one Xanax or taking one Oxycontin. You're taking multiples. Um you know, it's, it's, it's a different thing where, you know, for me, I, I take my, I take my one pill every day and that's it. I don't go back and take three, four five, six, seven pills, you know, right. You're or, not thinking about it. Drinks. The urge isn't yeah. there. Yeah, exactly. The cravings, right. all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. exactly. Um, 
so yeah, that, that, that was the one thing, um, you know, where I did, uh, you know, catch him and he, he did return the pills and stuff and was very sorry about it. But, um, you know, moving forward a couple of years, um, you know, we can kind of skip forward to, you know, three years after that. Um, at this point he was 33. Yes. Um, when I, yeah, yeah, he was, I was 30, he was about 33. Um, and then for our business, we both moved back to Portland. Um, uh, he moved back spring of 2018. I moved back at the end of summer of 2018. And, um, you know, we had an, we have an office down that we worked downtown and, and we worked, worked out of there. Um, he came to work every day. Um, again, never would have, would have known. And, um, you know, I should back up and just say my, my parents did tell me, I think it was about a year, year and a half before he passed about his previous addiction issues. And, you know, from what they both said, James and my parents is they both thought one of them told me. So they, James thought my parents told me, my parents thought James told me, but again, cross, you know, whatever, whatever happened, didn't happen. Um, so for me, it was, I was always the one seeing James on a daily basis. And I would see these certain little, little things that you wouldn't even really pick up on, but it's just certain things. I was like, this doesn't seem right. doesn't make sense. Um, but again, I don't have any background, so I don't know what's going on. Um, so if I knew earlier, those are things I could have brought up to my parents or just, you know, even talk to James about, um, you know, so it wasn't until the last month, you know, he, he passed away at December, December 9th. So it wasn't about the last month. I started noticing like just pretty drastic behavior, not bad behavior, like not going out and, you know, shooting up or anything or like what we think would, you know, would constitute bad behavior, but like, uh, uh be in the office and, and his, uh, his condo was only, I don't know, 10 blocks away to say, Oh, I, I have to go home. And, you know, actually wouldn't even tell me, you just get up and leave and I'd text him and say, Hey, where'd you go? Um, Oh, I had to get home, go home and get a pencil. You know, I had to go home and get a pen or I had to go do this. And it's like, kind of go, and you look at the desk and you go, well, you have a huge, you know, thing of pen and pencils right there in front of you. You have a notebook right here. You know, just these little things never started adding up. Um, you know, and, and, and so, and then some of the erratic, I want not write erratic behavior, but the mood swings, the last week before he passed, it was the mood swings, you know, where he would just, uh, like Thursday, the Thursday night before he passed, um, there was a, a, an argument. I don't even know what I, I think about a credit card, I think. And he just called me up and was just chewing me out. And I'm going, I was, I got, like I told him, I said, I was downtown all day. Why didn't you ask for it there? Like I live way out in West Beaverton, you know, uh, during traffic, it would take an hour to get downtown for, you know, for people who don't know the Portland metro area. Um, that'd be a two hour round trip. And I'm just going here. I was downtown all day. And yet now you're yelling at me. I mean, yelling. Um, and that's when I told, you know, talked to my dad that night and said, I'm done. I just, I'm done being treated like this. This is ridiculous. Um, if something doesn't change, then you know, I'm gone. Um, and you know, I, I, and I vividly remember that conversation, like, like it was yesterday. Um, you know, with just cause I, I knew something with your dad or your brother, both, both. Yeah, yeah. both. Um, just because I, I knew and I knew something was going on and I couldn't pinpoint it. I didn't know exactly what it was. Um, and the next day, my wife and son and I, we went to Central Oregon for the weekend just to get out of Portland. And uh, Sunday when we got back, um, uh, December 9th, uh, we got back around three o'clock. 
and I went to go pick up my dog uh, from the kennel. And during that drive, my mom called me like she did on most Sundays. Hey, have you heard from James? Cause he would just kind of unplug um, from the weekend for the weekend, you know, just, and I should say he would call my mom three, four, five times a day when he was walking to work or walking back around town or whatever it may be. He would call her all the time and just talk just to pass time. So when my parents didn't hear from him, they would always get nervous. Um, and again, it was always the weekends cause he would unplug be out with his friends or whatever it may be. And, um, and she called and, and, you know, just said, Hey, have you heard from James? And I said, no, you know, it's just a typical weekend, you know, just haven't heard from him. But in the back of my mind, I, I just knew something was up. And so I called back and asked and, and, um, I talked to my dad for about an hour and, and he was telling me about the night before where he, uh, he, my mom and my, my brother were on the phone for on and off for like six hours. You know, James was just calling him. Um, I should, I should state that he, um, uh, that Thursday morning before he passed, I, I apologize about missing this part was he said, he, I can't come in the office. I'm not feeling well. I feel like I have the flu. Um, you know, but when I talked to him, um, he did not sound like he had the flu, you know, like when, when you were distinctly sick with a cold or the flu, like you have that nasally or whatever it may be. He just, he did not sound that way. So I, I think for me over the weekend, that's what kind of put me on edge was when I talked to him those couple of times, just, he didn't sound sick to me. And, um, I just, I just had a feeling something else was up in my mind. And, um, and he, uh, um, trying to, oh yeah. So I got back on Sunday and, and my mom called and, and so I talked to my dad for an hour and he was telling me that the night before he was, he was trying to, he was, um, going through a, um, he, he had this craving for a video camera to, to start producing videos for, for the business, um, to do workflows on. And he, he just incessantly called my dad saying, have you made up your mind? Have you made up your mind? Have you made up your mind? And my dad kept saying, James, it's Saturday night. Like, I'm just having a, a drink here. Um, just I'll, we'll talk to more, you know, talk more about it tomorrow, you know, and it was just, a, it's a normal conversation, you know, but he was just going through this manic phase. I mean, serious manic phase of he had to have it now, 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 now. And, um, and so, you know, he, um, you know, the last time my parents talked to him was about 10 30, 11 at night. Um, he called them and, and, um, and, they thought he was in bed. And so my dad was like, why are you up? And he's like, oh, I'm just outside walking right now. just getting some fresh air. And my dad did ask him, he goes, are you, are you on drugs, James? Are you okay? And he goes, no, no, I'm not. I, I don't have a dealer. Um, so don't worry about that. And, and, um, and, uh, you know, a couple hours later he's dead. So, um, you know, it was, uh, so it was Sunday after I talked to my dad, um, I hung up the phone. And I was upstairs, um, with my wife and, and she just looked at me and says, you're going down to a condo, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And in the back of my mind, it was more of, I wanted to go down to one, make sure he was okay. Cause you know, maybe he wasn't feeling well just to say, you know, if he needed fluids or whatever it may be, but to also, you know, kind of hash things out like, Hey James, if there is something going on, talk to me, tell me whatever it may be. Um, but I did tell her, I, I, I vividly remember telling this saying, um, I said, I just, I just don't, I don't think he'll be alive. And yeah. And, and again, I've had these, I've had these calls every Sunday for the last five years, you know, Hey, Hey Eric, you know, from my parents, have you, have you heard from me? You know, have you heard from James? No. And I never in my 
wildest dreams think anything was wrong with them. Never. But that day, just, just something was up in my head and, and um, drove down um, to his condo. And, and uh, he was, you know, very friendly with both, um, both, uh, you know, doormen. And, um, and unfortunately that day, there was a new person, uh, brand new first day on the job. He was following the rules by the book, you know, nothing wrong with that. So I was having trouble getting up to his room. Um, the doorman even knocked on his door twice uh, uh, for me. And, and I said, hey, just, he's really sick. Let me go up. And he called the manager and he said, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. I know him. And so I go up, open the door and, um, and you know, within 10 yards from me, from the door to where I was, he was slumped over on the couch, um, uh, face down. Um, stuck between the way he slumped over was between the couch and his dining room table and he was stuck there. Um, and, uh, you know, he was cold. I mean, all of it, you know, for me, it was, I, I, I can, I can replay that, that image a million times in my head, you know, the smell, the, the look of him, um, how the condo was lit, um, everything. Um, and, uh, you know, called the police, they came, um, and, uh, the detective, um, detective dairy, he, he was spot on. I mean, wonderful, very nice guy, wonderful guy. And, um, he told me point blank that night, just said, um, you know, that he's, he's been dead now for about 13 to four, you know, between 13 to 16 hours. We, be, we believe his time of death was like 3 AM. And, um, based on what we found, they found, um, a, a small box, like an earring box in his, in his nightstand, uh, that contained, uh, uh 30 pills, um, 30 press pills, uh, of five milligram and 30 milligram Oxycontin. However, they looked identical. However, they were counterfeit. Um, uh, very easy to make counterfeit pills. Now, um, pill presses are widely available everywhere. And the way they knew was because Oxycontin's blue, uh, these pills were white and, um, he goes most likely, uh, you know, a 99% chance that he had fentanyl in one of his pills and fentanyl for people that don't know, um, is you know very strong highly highly potent uh synthetic opioid that's about 100 times stronger than you know or 50 times stronger than you know, morphine um it's very potent very quick you know it's used in surgeries you know like when you give birth or whatever it may be um they do use that uh people who who um are in late stage cancer they you know have uh fentanyl patches to, to help ease the pain but what's coming out now is is um because fentanyl is so cheap um, they, uh, they ship, you know, the, the fentanyl from China down to Mexico, it's all produced there, um, comes up the streets and people, it's basically Russian roulette now with pills. Um, they don't know what's in it. So you think you're getting one thing, um, from your normal dealer and you really have, they don't know. I mean, it's just, it's to say this, it's a, a lethal dose of fentanyl is, is equivalent to three grains of salt, you know, table salt. So you're never going to know what's in there. Um, uh, so uh, I talked to the toxicologist um, after his report came out um, about two months later. And, and uh, he had, um, let me get my thoughts here. He had um, a, a therapeutic dose of fentanyl, what you would consider taking in, in a medical setting, um, is between um, 0 0.01 and point. Yeah, I think it was uh, I think it was 0 0.01 and 0 0.1 nanograms, and I could be 
mistaken. It could be 0 0.001. Um, but the dosage is just so strong that they measure it in nanograms. Um, oh. So 0 0.01 to 0.1. And he had, he had a, a 4.35 nanograms of fentanyl in his system. And so, I mean, he was four like times a top, the amount. That's four times. Uh, four, 400 times. 400? <laughs> four hundred. Yeah, forty to four hundred times the amount of fentanyl in the system. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I talked to an anesthesiologist who 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 is working with fentanyl, um, and he just said, you know, you know, just to let you know, he was probably dead within a couple of minutes, and but it was very peaceful. Um, so, I don't know. I mean. Yeah, it helps a little bit, you know, knowing he didn't suffer. But the the thing that haunts me to this day um, is knowing that he he doesn't know he's dead. You know, he was suffering that night. He was going through a manic episode. Um, you know, he was he was in distress, and he took that pill thinking it was just going to be a five or thirty milligram oxycotton, and ends up on the couch dead. Um, and that's that's a thought that probably you know that goes to my mind. I don't know a few times a day, at least just, you know, thinking that, you know, knowing he's not dead. Um, and for me, uh, and I'll be very honest about this is what came out of that was, you know, again, I'll, I'll go back to the, to, to what we think addiction is, you know, growing up, you know, just what like the news and media has taught us is it's the people on the streets that have the addiction issues. Um, never do you question why do they have those issues? What, what, what's the root cause of addiction? Why, why are they on the streets? You know, why are they homeless with, with that mental health disorder and or, you know, disease of addiction? Um, so after his death, and I'll be blunt, I, and I, I go through this question a lot in my mind. If I got called from a police officer telling him or telling me that they, they, the doorman um, found my brother dead, uh, from a drug overdose, what would my what would have my reaction been? Because for me, finding him, I I, I personally saw the devastation, um, the final straw of what addiction can do. Uh, but if I was called and told that, I I don't know if I would have would have kind of thrown myself in like I have to understand what addiction is and to try to be an advocate for change around addiction. Um, wow. That's and I wrestle powerful. That, yeah. And I, and I wrestle with that question a lot because it, it frustrates me. What's the difference between someone calling me um, on the phone and telling them, you know, telling me that, Hey, you're, you're, you know, of course it's sad. It's, it's terribly sad, but for me, it's more of what's the difference between your brother died of an overdose versus me finding him. And that's a question I wrestle with a lot in my mind. Um, of how would I've reacted? And, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Cause I, I didn't, I wasn't called. I was the one who found him. So, um, so out of that, you know, we're, you know, kind of taught, you know, for me, it was like, what does grieving look like? Um, for the first week I was just in major shock. Um, you know, we had the, the ceremony, his funeral, I don't know, uh, that Saturday. Um, and when you think about grieving, you know, for me, it's like, you think, oh, you're going to be in a bed or on a couch crying incessantly for the next like five months, you know, eating tons of ice cream and this and that. And what I've learned is that's, you know, everyone, everyone grieves so differently. Um, and for me, 
you know, I, I didn't want to knowing James as well. I didn't want to sit there and just cry and, and maybe that's just not my personality, but that, that wouldn't do anything. Um, so for me, I just kind of threw myself into a bunch of, you know, books about addiction and, and research and different podcasts and, and to try to understand why did this happen to my brother? I mean, again, it happens to 70,000 people a year who die of drug overdoses. Um, you know, when we can go on about alcohol, you know, alcohol kills 88,000 people a year. Um, suicide uh, kills another 50,000. You know, so we're talking about deaths, deaths of despair here that have ravaged our nation over the last 20, 25 years. Yeah. You know, that kill this many people and people don't even blink an eye about it. You know, I mean, every single year, 70,000 people die of a drug overdose. Almost 90,000 people die a year of, of um, alcohol-related uh, uh, addiction. And another 50,000 people die of suicide. I mean, those are just insane numbers. Insane. And you think, you go back to like 99, 2000, drug overdoses were two to 4,000 a year. And so it's just, a, it's an astronomical number that when people see it on the news, you know, like I did multiple times, um, you kind of go, wow, that is a big number, but the news it's is over. It's something that you don't see. No, you don't. You don't. We're all I, searching for the, okay, we want to see the guy on the street because he obviously yeah. has a problem, but it goes back to what you're saying. You saw mm -hmm. something that no one else has seen. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, th thousands of people have you know seen it, but the, the issue right. is with, with, and I know what you're saying is the issue with addiction is it's, it's been, it's been held in silence for so long because you go back to AA, you know, alcohol's anonymous or, you know, you go back to, you know, even narcotics anonymous or all, all the anonymous, right. It's anonymous. So yeah. you don't want to talk about it outside your group. And I'm not saying, and again, I'm not saying AA or NA or whatever. Those are amazing, amazing groups. And they, they help, you know, millions of people. But the, the notion that you should be anonymous and not talk about it, that's what has kept the, these epidemics raging for so long. Secrets. Yeah, the secrets mm -hmm. that, you know, just keep going and going and going. You know, I remember the eulogy because I was, you know, the, the, the detective was, he was 99% and he was, again, dead on after um, uh, I heard the, the coroner report. Um, my eulogy, my first draft of the eulogy was laying that whole story out because I wanted, I wanted you know, all 300 people to know what happened to him. Um, again, there was, there was no corn report a week after. So, you know, now if I go up there and say it and didn't happen, um, you know, I would have you know, had a heart attack. Right. But um, in my heart, I, I knew what happened. I, I saw the, the rolled up post-it notes. I, you know, I saw the, 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 the crushed up pills on the counter. Um, I, you know, I, I just know, cause I, I just saw all of it, the, the destruction there. And, um, you know, I was shown the, the box of 30 pills. I mean, it's just, yeah. So I didn't want, and again, it's, it's a lot to comprehend in, in a week and it's still a lot to comprehend now, you know, about, about drug overdoses. But for me, I, I wanted to lay, I wanted to be as honest as, as possible to the people who were going to be at his funeral to say, this is addiction. This is what it looks like throw all your preconceived notions out the door. That's, that's just BS, you know, coming from the media. That's, that's not, that's not what addiction looks like. This is what addiction looks like. It has a whole range of, of, um, you know, coming from this, you know, either from the streets or all the way up to 
to the highest functioning multimillionaire. You know, every, right. everyone experiences it. Um, you know, the people who, who are on the streets, uh, you know, who are homeless, um, they could be there because they burnt enough bridges where they don't have anybody to turn to because of their addiction. Um, uh, you know, and, and, or because of mental health disorders and they have no one there to help, you know, it's, you know, we, we got to stop thinking, you know, people who live on the streets are these, these awful people that like they're, you know, they're, you know, degenerates and stuff They're, they're everyone is going through something and we need to understand that. And instead of trying to shun people, we need to start creating a comprehensive system um, that addresses mental health, that helps people with, you know, substance use disorders, um, you know, instead of, you know, for, you know, it's just, it's frustrating. And so again, this is the last, you know, you know, uh, 17 months where, um, you know, about a month after he passed, I created a nonprofit called Henry's uncle. Henry's my two-year-old son. He was eight months um, at the time of James's death. And it devastated me that Henry will never get to know his uncle. And that was the biggest thing for me. Um, it just crushed me because, you know, he, he was so excited to be an uncle and he was sure. an uncle to so many of his friends' kids. Um, and, you know, I, I've seen so many, you know, pictures of, of, you know, James and, and his friends' kids together and stuff. And I don't have a picture of that. And that just like to this day, that will always crush me. Um, but for me, I, I, I started it because I also wanted to, I wanted to, I want to help end the stigma around addiction. But for me, there was a lot of questions I wanted to understand as well. And I wanted to talk to, talk to the people who, who have gone through it. Um, the doctors who are helping on the front lines, um, the, the advocates who have been doing this for countless years. I wanted, to, I wanted to understand more about it. And so in that process of the nonprofit, you know, I created a, a podcast called the Henry's Uncle Podcast. And it is talking to people, um, you know, in addiction uh, or sorry, uh, in recovery uh, from addiction, uh, doctors, um, you know, who, who are on the front lines, you know, helping people with, with mental health disorders, substance use disorders. Uh, it's talking to um, other nonprofits about what they're doing, uh, talking to companies who are trying to, you know, break the barriers around um, uh, medication assisted treatment to understand, you know, why are there so many gaps in our, in our healthcare system that allow people who are vulnerable and who have an addiction issue to escape and, end up dead, not help, but dead. And, and, you know, I can, I, I've seen it myself where, where someone who at the time I didn't know had an opiate addiction went to the ER and, and in reality, what they're doing is they're calling out for help. Yes. They, they may be asking for more drugs, but it's a call for help. And I, and I've seen, and I've seen ER doctors say, basically you're banned from this ER, get out later. You know, I've, my, 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 uh, board member, uh, Bobby, who, who's been on the podcast, um, he had a, uh, alcohol use disorder. He's been sober now for 17 months, um, right before James passed actually. And, and, um, and he's had, uh, his discharge papers say, uh, the safest thing for you right now is to go home and keep drinking. What? I mean, yeah. So that's our, you know, that's our healthcare system. Um, they, they make it impossible. They, they, they allow, the federal government allows the doctors to, to prescribe, it doesn't matter how many opiates they want, you know, to, to patients. Um, uh, but for them to be able to prescribe a medication assisted treatment, um, which is considered the gold standard of, of opiate use disorder is, um, you know, like methadone, buprenorphine, all that stuff. The doctors have to go through a, a, you know, 10, 12 hour training, whatever it may be, and then they're, they're limited to only helping out 30 patients for the first year. Then they have to go back 
and submit a waiver for additional more patients. And again, you know, and in a, a MAT like buprenorphine, it's just a, um, you know, opiate, um, I'm, I'm totally butcher it here. Um, uh, you know, so basically it helps with cravings. It helps with opiate cravings, you know, so people can be on it and, and taper off, but live a functioning normal life. Um, and so again, they, you know, like for methadone, they make people go down every single day to a methadone clinic and wait in line to be dispensed their drugs. They make, you know, uh, and and what frustrates me is all these, these, these policies in place that make apps. It's like, you want to help. You're throwing billions of dollars at this. Why don't you just re take these restrictions away? You're, you're allowing doctors to, to, you know, prescribe billions of, of opioids, but you're limiting the amount of help they can provide. Right. Where's the logic? You right. know, so <laughs> Um, so it comes of people, down to money. And so oh way. yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. It comes down to money. Um, and it, it just, uh, it's disgusting. And, you know, for people who, who are addicted or have an addiction issue, um, it's very hard to find a, a bed to, to help with detox and to get them in for, for proper treatment. Um, you know, someone might go in and say, you know, they, they might have that light that comes on and says, I need help now, but they might get, you know, ring the phone and it says, Oh, wait, you, know, you might have to come back three, four or five weeks when we have an open bed. Boom. That person might not be around three, four or five weeks. Um, like the fact so that, have you found that the fact that when people show up to emergency rooms usually is the last straw? Like, no, no. I mean, that's just them, you know, either trying to, to, you know, say I have an injury, I need more drugs for it. Um, um, and or who are trying to get help, you know, real help. And, and for the, help. yeah, and the ERs, a lot of the ERs um, don't have policies in place that say, hey, here, this is what we're going to do. We're going to help you detox. Um, we're going to get, you know, if you can, um, we're going to give you medication to help you detox. So it's not, it's not painful or dreadful. Um, we're going to make you comfortable. And then we're going to put our plan in place uh, to have a warm handoff to a social worker, whoever it may be, who's going to help you find, you know, some sort of treatment uh, place for you. Um, they don't have that. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's frustrating. And, and I talked to, and this was amazing, um, a lecture I went to at OHSU with Dr. Uh, Anora Englander and, and what her team has done up at OHSU. And I was so proud that it's happened, happening here in Portland. They basically have created that. They, they are working, they are working, they are doing everything possible to help someone with an addiction issue to find treatment and into recovery. And yeah. again, it's not just in recovery is so many different things. It's not just being sober. Um, it could be, oh, right. Uh, That's like almost the last, you know, <laughs> it could be, uh, do you want to use less drugs? Do you want to use drugs more safely? Um, things like that. And, and these are our professional doctors, you know, talking to their patients with, you know, care and compassion. And I was, I was so impressed with this lecture and, and she was on, on the podcast too. So to really show humanity and saying, I'm not going to say I'm better than you. I'm a doctor and we're going to put you in this treatment program. They may not be ready for that. What they may yeah. want is, is how do I, how do I use the drug safer? Um, how do I properly inject if I have to, again, because injections cause, you know, um, if you don't have a, a sterile needle it can cause AIDS or HIV, or, you know, if you hit the wrong veins or whatever it may be, it could lead to other diseases in your body. Um, and, and they're really truly helping people out and talking to them, um, with care and compassion. So they, they feel more vulnerable. And as they feel vulnerable, they start to open up 
and become them real selves and ask, start asking for help. And that was such, and I, I hope, I truly, truly hope her, her program goes to every single hospital nationwide because you will start seeing real change. Well, um, I don't know if you're aware, but I think when we were talking a long time ago, how, so uh, this is going on combat COVID-19, but Mm -hmm. my brother, he, a lot of the therapists over in Central Oregon have combined forces to the programs that, um, that go from hospital to patient right away. So they're, Mm -hmm. they're prescribing. So the counselor's offices are able to prescribe medication right from the hospital to the Mm -hmm. thing. And to, it's kind of sounds similar. I don't know. They, they, so yeah, yeah. they they do have a program um, where they are expanding out in Oregon and they meet every Wednesday um, uh, for training, all that kind of stuff and talking. So they, they are training other people around Oregon, other hospitals. Um, and it's, it's such a good model and you know, it's, it's, it's inspiring to see. And I love that, you know, love the work that they're doing up there. Um, you know, cause again, in, in, I went to a RX summit last year in Atlanta, Georgia, where, you know, 4,000 people gather about the opioid epidemic and the Monday, and this is about four months after my brother passed, I was with my mom and the Monday we get there, it was just kind of like a soft opening session, um, with a few, you know, head you know, FDA officials and DA officials, things like that up at the, at the podium and mothers were just screaming. I mean, just screaming at them, telling them same story. My, my son was in the ER a month ago and you, you can't tell me he was in the ER a month ago because of an overdose, but you can send a sheriff to my door at 1am in the morning to tell me he's dead. You know, did you ask outrageous? That sounds to me. Um, so you see, and you start going, my God, this is just 4,000 people. Um, and the amount, and you just start multiplying and you start thinking in your mind, you start multiplying that around the nation, just how big this, this epidemic is. And I'm not just going to say opioid epidemic. It's an addiction epidemic. We have to get away from just strictly opiates. It's not, it's meth. It's, it's opioids. It's alcohol. It's, you know, cocaine, it's everything, you know, stimulants, uh, stimulant overdoses are on the rise. Um, opioid overdoses are on the rise, you know, alcohol, um, uh, deaths are on the rise. You know, it's just a, it's a, it's awful. It's just, it's terrible to see. And the fact that we don't as a nation don't have a comprehensive strategy around it. You know, I know our country just loves to throw money, mm-hmm. you know, and that's wonderful. But if we're going to throw a billion dollars without no strategy, that's a billion dollars gone. You know? Well, th- yeah, I was watching, um, there was a documentary on Netflix a while ago that just blew my mind about um, eating disorders and how, mm-hmm like people will get into the eating disorder clinic they're there for 60 days, mm-hmm. they're totally not recovered and they have to be yeah. dismissed because their insurance mm-hmm. doesn't yeah. go past that, you know, and yep. there's no, I mean, it's like those people, they do the follow up six months later and their addiction is actually worse. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, yeah, it's complete the same. It's waste. It is. And you know, like the same with like, you know, it's uh, a lack addiction. Of understanding the disease. Yeah. Also money. I mean, it was like they, those people checking them out knew that that was mm-hmm. what was going to happen. I mean, they just, they do what they're supposed to do. They weigh those girls or guys and two, and you know, they mm-hmm. do what they're told, but they know this person's not going to recover. Like yeah. 100%. You know? And you know, same with addiction, you know, it's just eating, you know, eating disorder. Um, you know, same with a, a drug or alcohol disorder. You go to a, you know, an addiction, uh, treatment for, for 30 days, that's, that's barely enough time to detox, you know, and, and you got to think of the, the amount of damage your body has been through 
and for your your brain to reset and your body to reset and and the therapy you know that that's months and years it's not just 30 days so you know we have to get over this 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 hump of 30 days is the cure it's not at all you know it's it's wonderful that you're sober that's great but there's so much more that needs to go into it um and especially now with with you know with covid happening you know 15 percent oh, unemployment um and and again it's gonna, it's going to go both ways uh you know we're seeing you know this is just in two months um if that you know just 15 percent unemployment you're talking about social isolation you know um you know physical Talk about dis- secrets yeah secrets you're, you're you know everything has everyone's routine has changed it's no longer you know people who are in recovery you know routine helps them out so much you know waking up showering going to work, coming back, making dinner, working out, going to bed. Now that's just totally gone, right? So you, you add in the, the, the stress, the anxiety. Um, am I going to have a job tomorrow? All that stuff. Those are, those are relapse triggers. And, and you see reports coming out now around different counties in the U.S. And, you know, overdoses are on the rise. Overdose calls are on the rise. Uh, people's, um, you know, habits may change where, uh, you know, I, I'm done with, you know, like if you're in college, I don't know, or if maybe uh, uh, work has, you know, uh, come down a little bit, you know, I'm going to have a, a cocktail during lunch, you know, and that, that, that starts to lead to every day. And then oh, I'm going to have a couple more cocktails. And then again, it just, and then it starts, you know, snowballing, right? You're not, you don't even know it. Um, so it's, it's, it's awful to see. And, 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 you know, there are projections, there are models out there that in addition to, you know, what's happening right now, that they're they're expecting an additional seventy five thousand deaths to occur oh. just in deaths of despair. So when you when you talk about the the ninety thousand people who died of alcohol, the fifty thousand who have died of suicide, and the seventy thousand who died of drug overdoses, they're tacking on another seventy five thousand. So all this progress that you know as a nation we're trying to make, you know, it's gonna it's you know, and I hope it doesn't. Um, you know, it's gonna uh, this pandemic is just making things so much worse. And really, what this pandemic is doing is showing how fragile our healthcare system is and how much it needs to change. <laughs> yeah. Um, we all knew it. Um, but it, it's really exposing those gaps and, um, very clearly. And so, you know, on one hand, what, it, what this pandemic has done, it has loosened rules where, where telehealth is becoming huge. So, um, uh, um, you know, people like a company here in, uh, um, in Portland called Boulder care, people who have an opioid use disorder can go on and sign up for an app. Uh, sign up for, for their program and they get linked to a doctor um, via their, their app uh, any time of the day and they can get prescribed buprenorphine. So they don't, they don't have to go uh, to the doctor's office or they, you know, all that kind of stuff. So they're, they're, they're reducing barriers and telehealth has been so long coming um, that, you know, luckily those barriers now. So instead of saying, Oh, it's a daily prescription, you know, they're allowing a one month prescription, um, you know, methadone, they're allowing, not in all areas, in some areas, you know, they're allowing two to four weeks of take home. So, so again, you know, and, and, you, and people think, why is that a big deal? Well, think about, think about if you had to go say, um, I'm just going to pick anxiety as a, a mental disorder as so that's what I have. Um, if I had to go to, to a clinic every day, wait outside in a line of a hundred people, 50 people, whatever it is, and wait for my medication as cars drive by, do you know how demoralizing and embarrassing that is? you know, as people look going, Oh, what's wrong with that person? You know? Yeah. Or um, the time that it takes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The amount of time it takes, all that stuff, the inconvenience. So, so, you know, in some aspects it has loosened rules up, um, f- 
for the better that people have been advocating for so long for. Um, but it's not enough. And, and there, there's so much change that needs to happen. Um, and it's just very scary times with, with people, you know, who, who are just newly sober, who haven't built that connection yeah. around yet. Right. Um, you know, what are the tips and tricks? I mean, it's just, you know, so much of a, of a, you know, you know, the, the famous quote is the opposite of addiction is connection. And it's very true. So people who, who go to their daily, weekly, whatever it may be, AA meetings, NA meetings, um, you know, they, they get to walk up and hug their friends, you know, be open and honest, you know, have that eye to eye contact, you know, now at the zoom meetings. So everyone's home by themselves or with their loved one, whatever it may be, there's not that intimate contact anymore. Um, so it's, it's very scary. Um, and we don't want people going back into, you know, or, you know, people relapsing that they are, you know, it's, it's very sad to see and hear, but, um, it is happening and it just, um, it's a very scary time because I, you know, for us, uh, you know, for everyone, fear of the unknown is the biggest fear of all. And right now there's no clear cut answer <laughs> for any of us yeah. of what's going to happen. Um, we know there's going to be uncertain times for the next, I don't know, I'm probably going to say a couple of years. Um, and, uh, you know, unless there's some sort of miracle vaccine or whatever that comes out soon, but, um, this new normal, um, where we can't go to restaurants and you think about the hospitality industry and how many people that employs and, you know, it's just, oh, there's just so much to it. So much. Well, and, and like you open up the restaurants, but then how long are those restaurants going to last? Because they've been. Yeah. And so the uncertainty of your job, you yeah, know, this is not a quick fix. No, it's not. And you know, wonderful. You, you, you might get that PPP loan to, to be open for a couple months. Uh, you know, but if, if sales aren't there, they're going to have to keep letting people go. So it's just this, this constant cycle of fear um, of the unknown that that's going to happen. And, and it makes people, you know, very uneasy. There's a lot of unrest. Um, and a lot of that, you know, the, the news doesn't help. Um, you know, the, the constant, it doesn't matter if it's left or right. I don't care about that. The news is just always trying to grab headlines and, and kind of, you know, do fear mongering and all that stuff. And so, um, you know, for me personally, um, you know, I was feeling that, you know, for, for, uh, during the, the, this pandemic early on, my, my anxiety was very high. Um, uh, you know, for the first week I was like, just not even eating. Um, you know, now knowing what the new normal looks like after that first week, I just kind of adapted and you kind of settle in. Um, and you know, but for me, it was like, you just, you're on social media and you just see the constant negative news and the people bashing each other. And so, a couple of days ago, I just quit all of it. I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I know within 24 hours, my whole mental state improved dramatically, dramatically. Um, and so, you know, for me, for, you know, that was that, uh, um, it's just, there's just so much out there and it's, it's scary. And, and, you know, I had a person, uh, um, on the podcast, I'll be releasing it next week. Um, he's a person, uh, who's Lance Orton. He's been on the podcast before and he documented his recovery or talked about his addiction and, and his recovery. And he's, he's so well-spoken um, about his recovery and he's very faith-based um, in his recovery and very service oriented. And he was recently furloughed um, from his nonprofit work and, and it was scary. And he just, you know, said, I'm, I'm just going to keep going. You know, I, you know, I'm not getting paid right now. Um, but what he talks about a lot in the podcast is being able to surrender, surrender mm -hmm. to the unknown. And that was a very powerful 
um, <clears throat> message, you know, he was saying, cause that can translate to so many different, it's not just addiction. It just, it can translate to so many different parts of our lives where instead of trying to control every aspect of your life, if you just surrender to it and let it happen, things will just start coming naturally and a lot more easier. And there's not so much stress and built up tension. So yeah. And you know, luckily they got a PPP loan and so they're going to be back up and running. Um, uh, you know, so he has a paycheck, but you know, there was that uncertain time of, you know, he's in recovery, he's working for a nonprofit and you know, he's trying to make ends meet. Um, yeah. it's tough. It's tough for a lot of people out there right now. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's not just people with addiction, but mental health disorders or just anybody. So, you know, if people are, are complaining to you, don't say, Oh, you're important. You know, your issues aren't that important compared to what's going on. Well, for them, that is their issue. Yeah. So one thing I keep thinking in my head as you're talking is like fear, that word fear, mm -hmm. such a bad word, <laughs> but mm -hmm. the, I would say like the opposite of fear is, is love. Mm -hmm. you know, and planting those seeds, like when you're saying like online and stuff. And, you know, I think now, um, you know, we're looking at individuals, like I'm looking at my friends who are next door. Um, and you know, I think everyone has a fear of being judged, you mm -hmm. know, and that, totally. and that a lot of it has so much to do with fear though. Like, the fear, what the fear causes. And now fear is divisive and fear mm -hmm. can make you go in. It can make you go addiction route. It can make you do those things. But like for me sitting, I do not have an addiction to that. Um, mm -hmm. What is one thing I know I can do? And that is, you know, my neighbors, like as small as that sounds is like, it's not necessarily, you know, there's so many things I can do, but mm -hmm. when someone says to me, I'm so pissed because da, 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 da. I'm like, yeah, I see where you're coming from, but you know, I'm like, yeah, that's just their road. You know, I'm like yeah. breaking those barriers, the fear yeah. barriers of just breaking those down and, and, and for someone and to planting those seeds and planting that love and who's to know that that person down the street is going to come and say, you know what? I, I've been really struggling. Like yeah. you become that person who's fearless and yeah. full of love opens the door for someone to maybe come to you and be like, I'm struggling, yeah. you know, no judgment here. Like that's part of why I do this podcast is because yep. of that. Like I want everyone to know this is a not judgmental place and that you're any guest who comes on here is open to being able to talk and all that kind of stuff, but living your life, not in fear too. Mm -hmm. Just, you just never know who it affects. Exactly. And you know, it's, it's funny that you say that cause um, you know, for me for the longest time, when I first started, you know, understanding that I did have anxiety um, I kept it quiet for so long until I finally told a couple of people because it was affecting my life. I wasn't going out anymore. I was staying at home. I mean, going across the street, you know, I remember going to a restaurant that was literally a thousand yards away and sure. I was just getting anxiety. I, I could see my apartment at that time, but I, was getting anxiety because I was away from home. And so um, I, when I started finally opening up to my close friends, they're like, oh, dude, I have that. I have anxiety. I've, you know, I've seen a therapist, all that. And I'm just kind of like going, oh, you know, and, you, and then you start talking about more and more and everyone's like, yeah, I, I have it. And so it, it just becomes normal. You know, everyone's going through something. And, and I think as, as Americans, we have a very hard time being vulnerable and opening up about our, our mental health just because of the amount of stigma there is around it. Um, like there was a great analogy. Someone said, 
you know, it, it doesn't matter, you know, the, the, the federal government could throw, you know, a few hundred million dollars and create millions of recovery beds, you know, for people to help. But if that, if that stigma and shame doesn't go away, people will not want to seek help to get better from their addiction. And yeah. so a lot of that is, you know, we as a society need to understand, you know, addiction is not a moral failure. Um, if you want to argue it, we can argue it, but it is a disease. Um, there has been proven research on it and it, the people who, who are going through it don't have control. And so, you know, just if you open up and just say, hello, how are you doing? You know, just be, be open to, you know, with them, be vulnerable, be honest. Um, it goes a long way and we need to, and that goes to everyone as well. And, um, we need to remember that because it's very easy to judge and, and drive down the street and see someone homeless and just go, Oh geez, what, what the hell happened to them? Why don't you get out of the car and ask? Cause it might be a hell of a story. Yeah. You know, you just never know. Um, and you know, there's been some wonderful people that when I'm downtown, uh, working, you know, some wonderful people who are selling street roots, uh, which I, I love uh, great, great, um, news source down there and, you know, helps the people out who are struggling, uh, wonderful stories. You know, and you, f you find out how they get down there and, and what they're doing. Um, it's, it's sad, but, you know, they're, they're, just, they're just trying to cope. And so, um, and a lot of them have really wonderful ideas on how to fix the system. And, you know, we, we think we have these experts up high and, you know, always sitting at the top. But these people who are, who are going through it, living it day by day, you, know, you talk to them and, and they have such wonderful ideas. And to be honest, pretty inexpensive ideas um, to yeah. what you know, as a federal government or a state government, we always want these lavish things and, and the perfect, you know, solution, but that's never going to happen. So, um, we need those people who have gone through it, who are going through it at the head of the table. And you see it, uh, here locally on, on the news, uh, the commercials for, for people running for secretary of state and, um, different, uh, uh, county seats, uh, finally coming out and say, my, my mother, um, my parent has dealt with, uh, opioid and meth addiction, or I'm in long, long-term recovery. So these are the people we need at these, you know, up at the seats, um, giving yeah. a voice to these people so we can start making change. Well, and, and two, it's like, if we were to dissect the brains of, um, of users, there's, they are literally the smartest people mm -hmm. on the planet. Like there's something to that, you know, like my kids are pretty smart, you know, but I'm like, yeah, that's great and everything, but what about everything else? Like, how are you, how's your character? How's your, this, how's your, that? I mean, like it's, there's so much to, and then just, I don't, I'm saying two things at once really, but the people that put weight on certain things is mm -hmm. not, is not where the weight goes. Mm -hmm. Like someone who wants to judge someone for being a druggie or whatever. It's mm -hmm. like, Oh, well, they're not that smart. Well, actually they're probably one of the smartest people ever. Like nothing goes yeah. like nothing. So, so like with my kids being like, well, I'm really smart. They, I put, they put a lot of weight on being smart. And I'm like, mm -hmm. there's so much more to life than that. You can't yeah. just be that. Like there's, 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 there, you need to be able to think through things. I don't know. Mm -hmm. One thing I find so touching about your story and about your brother is there's something about when he said, when he came to you and said that he had taken the opiates or your, your pills or whatever, mm -hmm. at that point he had been off and on addicted for a long time from what you said. Yeah. From what we, yeah, we believe. Say, yeah. 
for him to say that, like to be honest mm. and just go, I think that is so powerful about who he is because he wanted to, it's, it's like, he, it's like he wasn't choosing that. Like he wanted to oh, be in oh. a good place, you know, yeah. like, he wanted which to is feel so normal. devastating. And, and, you know, sorry to cut you off. I was just, you know, during yeah. that, you know, one of the most devastating things I found out after his, his, his passing, um, you know, I was able to hack into his accounts due to his wonderful passwords. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I found um, his Uber receipts. Um, and one of the most, and this, is, and this goes to show just how far addiction will take you. Um, we were, uh, it was a week of Thanksgiving, so about two to three weeks before he passed. Um, and uh, my parents came over. We were hosting that year, and and so James spent the night from you know uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Uh, Thursday we had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Friday, me, my uh, dad, and my brother woke up and went fishing on the Oregon coast with the with the guide we go with once a year. Um, and uh, and you know we got home. You know it was a Civil War day. Oregon Ducks versus Oregon State Beavers. We watched that. You know it was just a wonderful day. And you know we um, we we had dinner. Uh, we were watching a movie and then all of a sudden he just kind of goes, it was around seven o'clock at night. He goes, um, Oh, you know, my, my, uh, uh, the person, you know, he's running a condo from his friend. He's like, Oh, he is dropping off a mail key and I need to go get it. And it's like, well, there's, a, there's a doorman down there. Like he can just drop it off there. And he's like, no, I, I have to go get it. Cause he's leaving the, you know, I, I can't remember the whole story, but like he's leaving the state tomorrow. The whole thing just never added up. My mom was like, Oh, don't want me to drive you or, you know, whatever it may be. He goes, no, I already called an Uber. No big deal. And so in my mind, I was kind of timing because I go, I go downtown every day. So I know how long it takes to go downtown and back. So I was timing the, um, the, the Uber drive and, you know, kind of giving 10 to 15 minutes of, oh, he might talk to his friend for, you know, 10, 15 minutes, whatever it may be, um, or go up to his condo. But, uh, you know, what I find out was uh, looking at the, the Uber receipt that night, the map, um, is he drove, and we live way out in West Beaverton. Uh, um, basically out by Mountainside High School, um, which is like right on the rural line, basically. Um, he drove from there, took an Uber from there, all the way to Gresham and back. That's a 90-mile drive. Um, it was about 90 bucks, something like that, 85 bucks, so he could pick up pills. And when I found that, just thinking about that whole week um, just devastated me because here I, you know, here we were as a family, um, you know, he, he ran a 5k with his friend Wednesday night, came over Thursday. We had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We went fishing as a family on Friday. Um, you know, last time fishing, um, as, as you know, my, my brother, my dad and I, you know, watched the civil war, had dinner, watched a movie and then his addiction. And this is, you know, just how far it takes someone to, to take an Uber from here all the way up to Gresham, which is the East, East side of Portland. Yeah, way <laughs> um, away. Yeah. And to come all the way back, it, it just, it, it just dumbfounded me. And, and when I saw that, it just, it kind of cemented, you know, the, the feelings you have about addiction, but then it just kind of cemented it. It just visualized it like, wow, his cravings were so bad at that moment that he had to go all the way out there just to feel okay. And, oh, that just like, yeah, that, that one like definitely I think hurt the most of all of all the things. Um, just knowing that we were as a family together, 
you know, really our last week together or last weekend together as, as a family and, and his addiction, his cravings, you know, he had to go get those pills just to feel normal. And that one just really just devastated me. And that's, 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 that's a, um, you know, that's one thing I, I think about quite often. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, you know, the whole situation just sucks. I mean, everyone asks, you know, try to put a word on it. And I just, it's the only word I can think of. It just sucks. Um, you know, addiction sucks, uh, uh grieving sucks. Um, you know, just trying to, you know, it, it took, I mean, it took me up until the last month to finally have motivation again, um, to, to kind of feel normal. But like, as we were talking about before the podcast, the, the change in with the pandemic and not going to work every day, not having that routine, um, you know, I started feeling something different. And, and like I said, it's, it's really the first time I've actually been grieving, um, since his death. Cause I kind of threw my whole, you know, my whole, all my energy into my day-to-day -day job. And then also the nonprofit since then, and it was just go, go, go and do podcasts and this and that, whatever it may be, hang out with the family. And I just never gate, and I didn't know how to, and, sure. and, you know, and, and finally with this different, um, change, you know, my, my body was telling me something and I was just kind of like run down and finally just kind of said, okay, I, I need to stop for, I need to stop for a bit. Like I need to recharge. And, and I finally realized it was like just me grieving about my brother finally. Um, and again, it's just, there's been so many different emotions over the last, you know, 18 months, 17 months. Um, it's not been long. No, it hasn't. And there's you know, been a lot of anger um, just about the whole situation that just, you know, um, not him, but just anger in general of his death and, and everything that's kind of led to it and, and everything after. And, and so finally just been kind of last few weeks has been like processing things. And, and I finally realized like, it's like, Oh, that's, that's grieving. That's, you know, you're, you're trying to reconcile all the thoughts and stuff in your, in your mind and, and make sense of them and, 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 uh, kind of move forward. So, um, so yeah, I mean that's and that's a different subject, different conversation as well. But you know, you just kind of need to let your your body heal. You know, people just it's not a, have to be so judgmental all the time, and you know, top each other. You know, all that kind of stuff. So you know, we're yeah. seeing that now. Well, and a lot of like with the pandemic stuff, it's like those people that are lashing out and being really upset. They're in a way grieving in some way that they don't know. You know, it's mm -hmm. like this is beyond political at this point. It's mm -hmm. just, it's just a matter of like, you better just step back and look at the big picture because this is for the long haul. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, and people, you know, getting frustrated at people, you know, trying to open their businesses, but you know, you need to understand as well, someone who has poured their, their heart and soul into a business is almost like a child, right? I mean, they, they've invested so much time and money and effort, and then for that to be taken away and, and almost just, you know, buried, yeah, they're going to, yeah. And you know, people are going to do, you know, different things. And, and instead of people saying, Oh, how dumb they are, they're, you know, uh, breaking public health protocol and stuff. Yes, they may, but you also need to understand they, their, their business, that's their lifeline. That's how they pay the bills. And that's what they're, you know, that's how they do things. And that's almost like, you know, your child being ripped away from you, you know, the amount of time yeah. and effort you, you know, you put into a small business or a business in general, um, you know, and so we need to understand, you know, people, you know, we're all different. We're going to do different things. The majority of us, um, the news likes to pick the, the, the fringes 
And things are going to piss you off. Yeah, exactly. So they can get things are going to piss you off is what's going to be brought up. Yeah. And so we don't remember the majority of us are are following protocols and and staying home as we can. And, but if you do see that, you know, start thinking about the different side, you know, start thinking why that person is doing it instead of just your point of view. And so when we start, when we start thinking that way, you know, we can start coming to a, a common, you know, ground and, and start talking in a way that I think is respectable and, and will really help you know our society because everything now is so individualistic with Instagram and all the social media and and look at me and look at this and you know it's we you know society has just kind of forgot you know about community and you know as a you know as a human race we're all about socialization but we kind of social media has kind of taken that way you know it's it's more of you know look at look what I'm building right now. Look at me versus, you know, how are you doing? Um, you know, how can I help you today? And so, um, you know, again, just being small, small service acts like that can go a long way for, for people. So I think so. And, and then to top with the people that are struggling, I mean, this is like, you might be pissed off about someone not wearing a mask somewhere, but then someone else is, why would any, anyone who sees you act like that? Why would anyone want to come tell you mm-hmm. I have an, an, a problem? Yeah. Like it just spreads bad. Yeah. It just spreads bad. I don't care what your opinion is. It's still an opinion. It's still, a, it's, it's your right to have your opinion, mm-hmm. but what does that do? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. It just, well, yeah, I mean, we've seen everyone now has become a, a health expert and, and everyone has a PhD in virology and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it just, it's, we live in a very interesting time. And I mean, I'm kind of, you know, I know we're getting off topic here, but it's, it's very interesting to talk about because there's, you know, again, it comes to this pandemic and, and you can see how fragile our society is mm-hmm. um, when we're just thrust into this, this situation within two months and the chaos it has caused and, and what may ensue in the future in terms of, you know, the, the mental health aspect of it. Um, you know, long time, you know, long-term isolation, you know, leads to anxiety, depression, things like that. So, you know, we really need to, you know, I don't want to say start from the ground up, but really need to Starts with yourself though. Yeah, it does. That is very true. It does start with yourself. Um, and so, you know, there, there are, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, seek out a therapist and talk to someone. Um, I have, um, you know, about my anxiety and also about my brother passing. Uh, I know countless others who have too. So, you know, there's always room for improvement and people just, you know, it's there, you know, you just need to put the work in and, and those outcomes will be achieved. So. Yeah, that is great advice with all of this. I mean, just in wrapping this up too. So anyone who's listening struggling reach out to someone talk to someone even if it's not calling a therapist right away which you know it's hard to when you're in a struggling state to even have the energy to call a therapist mm-hmm. if you think about it that's a good point yeah um which is why i like when someone is say they're like i have a suicide attempt and they go to an er the er automatically sets it up and then you're basically almost transferred to a you know like they have that set up but yeah. for people that don't have that yet or haven't reached that point thank goodness but still reaching out to that one person that would listen to you right Mm -hmm. then and there find that person because like you said isolation isolation is no good and um it's not and secrets aren't good and the addiction wants you to be alone um Mm -hmm. 
and anxiety wants you to feel alone. And it's just, it's not true. It's a lie. Um, so yeah, I guess being that person that someone can come to and also the person that's struggling, find that person that you can go to. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Um, and in listening to you talk to with prevention, you know, prevention is a big thing. Yeah. Um, genetics, figuring out, getting the knowledge, like that sounds like something that you really wanted to glean towards after your brother. And even before just kind of getting to what is all of that and what, you know, getting off the stigma. Mm -hmm. We're here to tell you the stigma. Goodbye. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's no, there is nothing, no rhyme or reason um, in some, in some cases and a lot of cases. Yeah. So um, like when your brother said to your mom, like that's something that sticks with her and you is just like with the wisdom teeth, like, mm -hmm. um, oh, that feels good. I feel like myself. Like there's some things that, you know, depression runs in my family, hardcore, mm -hmm. um, and, and addiction and stuff too. And I am, I am like a hawk when it comes to this kind of stuff. Like, mm -hmm. and I do have my little concerns that I have in the back of my head where it's like, sure. I'm going to investigate that further or like, I wonder what that's going to turn into or this or that because grades on the report card aren't necessarily my number one concern. It's like, you know, I mean, just taking a look at the big picture and just being like looking at those kind of things too. Would you say prevention, welcome grief, Mm -hmm. um, find the person to talk to, be a source of someone to talk to. Yep. Um, is that good things yeah. for people to walk away? Would you like to add anything to that? No, I think you kind of nailed it right there. Just, you know, be open. Just if someone comes to you with their, their problem, don't think, uh, that their problem is not worthy because it is, that's what they're going through at that time. So, um, just have open ears and, listen and that goes a long way you don't have to say anything either just listen to them um yeah and if they ask do ask for help then help but um a lot of time people i think are just seeking out someone to listen so yeah well eric um thank you so much for being vulnerable um with your story and um and james and what you're doing with your with um henry's uncle's podcast and your nonprofit, we'll have all that information um posted as well on here um but just in closing um you know with your grief you know this is so new and just how it's awesome that you're welcoming your grief in mm -hmm. and getting through that so my heart is with you on that Oh, thank you. And for, and a lot of people that are listening, I'm sure are like, Oh my gosh, like, yeah, that have, have experienced loss, especially, but, um, that it's brave, you know, it's brave to go down the grief route. It's brave yeah, and not easy. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. You guys, um, walk away with something and spread the love. Don't have fear. Um, what was the other thing that, Oh, surrender, surrender to the circumstance find the people um and you're definitely not alone so yeah. take leave it with that thank you guys yeah. thank you you've been listening to this topical life with tiffany murphy available through podbean itunes and google play look for us on instagram and facebook donations to help support this topical life can be made through patreon at patreon.com 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com front slash This Topical Life. Likes and comments are always appreciated. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time for more real conversation, real exploration, real life stories. Because life ain't a vacation.